Father, we look to you for our salvation, that's for sure. You are a great God, and you are the God of our salvation. Thank you for Christ's great victory over sin. Thank you for these wonderful truths we've sung about this morning. Now as we open our Bibles, Father, and we receive the teaching from the mouth of our Lord Jesus, recorded by Matthew, what a privilege that is. Help us to apply this to our lives and our living, that we would walk in the truth and live out the truth. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There is a story about the late President Calvin Coolidge having gone to church without his wife. Evidently, she was under the weather. He had returned home from attending church that Sunday afternoon. His wife, unable to attend, but interested in what the minister had spoken on in the service, asked him, what did the preacher preach about today? Coolidge is said to have responded in one word, sin. She pressed on and pressed him for a few words of explanation. And being a a man and good husband, a few words with his wife, he responded, well, I think he was against it. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18 this morning, and if you don't get anything else out of the passage today, make sure that you get this out of the passage, that Jesus is against sin. He's always for sinners, but He's against sin. This is uh, just the most remarkable passage of Scripture. We're going to actually back up into last week's text. If you have your notes nearby as a listening guide, I think you'll find it helpful The reason I want to begin after we read our text this morning with verses 5 and 6 is because it reminds us of a couple foundational things that set the stage for the message. We'll point that out in a few minutes. Let's read the entirety of the text, Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 1 for context. And then we will read through verse 14. And let me remind you before we read then that we know from Mark's account and Luke's account that as they had approached this place, that the disciples had actually been in quite a heated argument over who would be the greatest in the kingdom, thinking of prestige and power. And our Lord, of course, in his omniscience, had had to know what they had been talking about. In Mark's account, it says that Jesus asked them, what have you been talking about? Luke's account says that they were silent. Mark or Matthew doesn't give us that detail, but just starts with the question that one of the disciples asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom? So evidently, I take it, putting the three passages together, that the disciples had really gotten into it together, had really begun to irritate one another in their pride and arrogance. And then when our Lord confronts them, what are you guys talking about? It got really quiet. And then someone, no doubt Peter, spoke up and said, Lord, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Here we go with our text, Matthew 18, 1. At that time, we don't know what that time was, just following the time before. Remember, they had gotten the money out of the fish's mouth. And they had moved. The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst, the child in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It must have been shocking to the disciples who couldn't care less about children. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Well, what a passage. Um, What I've done for our outline today is I've kind of allowed the the literary breakdown uh, of kind of the course or method of which our Lord is teaching here guide our thoughts. You're going to see, and you've already, you've recognized all of them in the passage, that our Lord has three different word pictures, illustrations that he paints with words. The first is going to encapsulate three truths that I want us to understand so that we understand the impact and punch of the rest of the passage. So he's going to give three vital truths that come out of a word picture. He's then going to give three direct warnings and yet another word picture. And then he's going to conclude with a final point and yet another word picture. Let's see if we can pick up the, the impact of this passage as our Lord teaches his disciples. So remember... The theme of this passage is humility. Our Lord is using the opportunity of the open arrogance and pride and infighting of the disciples to illustrate their lack of humility and, in fact, to magnify their pride so that they would be embarrassed by it. First of all, three vital truths in our outline out of this word picture. The first truth is sets the stage for the word picture. Verse 5 Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So he's holding this child. He's illustrating not that you become a physical little child, but you spiritually take on the qualities of a child. That of, of, of just loyalty, of trust, of believing what you're told, entering into the kingdom of heaven with just a simple child, childlike faith. Don't need explanation. I just... Totally trust. Trusting their daddy. We used the illustration last week of of a father throwing his child up in the air and catching them. That kind of simple childlike faith. You want to enter the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God or into his salvation? Have the faith of a child. And so the very first thing we see is this emphasis um, in the mind of our Lord Jesus of the closeness of the believer with himself. Letter A, the closeness of the believer in the mind of Christ. Notice what he says. 
Whoever receives one such child, one of these childlike believers in their childlike faith, if you receive them in my name, okay, they're a believer in my name, you receive me. And I have to step back from that and just say, wow. The, the element of connectedness here in the mind of our Lord with the believing family of faith and himself. His identity with us. We're related to one another. It's we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we connect with Christ. And when Christ looks at, a, at somebody who enters the kingdom in faith believing and believes in his name... So do you, you mess with them, you're messing with me. You welcome them in, you're welcoming me in. And remember we pointed out last week that that word of receiving me, that reception, that's a hospitality word. Welcoming them in to a place at your table. You welcome them in, you take care of them, you're taking care of me. We're identified with Christ very closely in his mind. Secondly then, he tells the story then, okay, so... Remember, partly because of that closeness, all right? If, if you're messing with one of these childlike infant believers, somebody who's come into the kingdom and brand new in my name, and you mess with them and cause them to stumble or to sin, it's the same as if you were messing with me and trying to make me stumble and sin. So you receive them, you receive me. How you receive them is how you receive me. So then he said... To add emphasis, notice that it's just a break, it's a comma, and the sentence continues. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, all right, so the, your translation might say, some translations use the word stumble to cause them to stumble. The Greek word there is the word sounds something like this, scandalos, scandal. We get our English word scandal from the Greek word translated stumble or sin, if you have a scandal going on and you cause one of these new believers who come in my name with childlike simplicity into the presence of their heavenly father, into the kingdom of God, and you cause them to sin, A, recognize that I closely identify with that. You're messing with me. And B, I want you to know that they are so precious to me. The preciousness of the believer in the heart of Christ is such that he said that... It would be better for you, here's the word picture, that a great millstone would be fastened around your neck and you would be drowned in the depths of the sea. So you get from that the preciousness in the heart of the Lord as he teaches, look, not only are am I closely identified with these, but they are precious to me. This is going to be connected back when he goes seeking out for the one sheep that's lost. It's so precious that he won't let it go. So you have the emphasis here on the preciousness you also have in this word picture this dramatic image of the millstone being fitted around the neck. We talked about that last week. And being dropped in the sea. And this is something that the Greeks and the Romans did do for capital punishment. The Jews did not. And the Jews were put off by it. They thought it was barbaric. It is a dramatic picture as to the seriousness of sin, isn't it? So we need to remind ourselves... As we enter into the rest of the teaching of this passage, that our Lord has set the stage to magnify that when you mess with one of these young believers, you're messing with me. They are precious to me. Don't forget that. And sin is very serious to the degree that if you cause one of them to stumble or there's a scandal going on and you cause them to sin or to turn away in obedience, in lack of obedience... 
you would be better off to be drowned out in the sea. Now, I need to recant on my sermon last week. My final point was that I, I thought at the time, going into that message and preaching that message, that that was a reference to eternal damnation. But I don't think it is. I've rethought that. Our Lord is teaching His disciples. They are believers. They are causing one another to stumble. He's teaching them for the future in His absence. He's emphasizing a, a teaching to believers here. In fact, even the picture and the imagery of the final story of the sheep. You're going out after one of your own. Next week's message, uh, the next section is on the, it's the church discipline passage. If somebody does sin, the obligation that we have to bring them back in. So it's not a condemning sin for, of eternal life in hell. It's a sin that, that deters them from obedience or from fellowship of believers. So let's, in my mind, what I was thinking, equate this with physical child abuse. Very few things are more sickening or disgusting than physical child abuse at a number of levels. We see it all the time in our culture, right? It's worthy of the death penalty. Okay, so let's say that you knew that sometime in your future you were going to commit physical child abuse. Wouldn't you rather die than live long enough to get to that point? If you knew that you were going to create or were going to commit some heinous child abuse sin, wouldn't you rather somebody put a stone around your neck and just throw you in the ocean before that could happen? I think that's exactly what our Lord is saying. He's not talking about an eternal condemnation here. He's talking about the seriousness of sin. See, our problem is we don't take sin as seriously as we should. But sin is so serious and it is so vile and it is so wrong that our Lord says, if you would be responsible for one of these childlike, simple believers who's coming in simple faith believing and you're going to deter them and you're going to make them sin and you're going to come up with a scandal that's going to trip them up, be better off if you just got a stone put around your neck and thrown in the ocean. That's how serious sin is. I think that's what he's saying. You'd be better off to die before you could commit that sin. He then moves into another section where he has another word picture and he gives three direct warnings. Three direct warnings. Okay, so we've laid the foundation. We need to wake up and realize the preciousness of these childlike believers in Christ. The closeness with which our Lord identifies with them. It is as though it is Jesus himself in our midst. And if Jesus were lost out on a mountain, we would go look for him. If Jesus sinned, we would do everything we can to bring them back into the fold. We also understand the seriousness of sin to the degree that he gives a warning about that sin. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The first is a general warning. You need to see that letter A, a general warning. And this word woe isn't like, it's not like my hook shot. Like, whoa, did you see that go in? That's not it. It's a curse. It's a curse. It's a condemnation statement. Woe to you. Cursed be you. 
if you cause people to sin. Now, notice in this general warning that sin is to be expected in the world. That's what he says. The ESV translates it, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. They're there and woe to them. And God is going to judge the world for sin, right? He goes on in the ESV, it translates it, for it is necessary that temptations come. The idea there is it is inevitable. It is inevitable that in this world, temptation to sin will be there. All right. He then gives an individual warning, letter B, an individual warning when he says, but woe to the one in the world, basically, through whom that sin comes. You know, we get vexed over people who get away with sin, don't we? In our culture and in our society, we've had a turning away from uh, a morality that has protected our community for many years and even been regulated through the laws of our country to the degree that our community officials have legalized sinful behaviors. And entire businesses are built Our whole community, you know, you would think that our community couldn't function if it weren't for the casino. There was a time that that was illegal. Now it's promoted and all kinds of other sinful behaviors and activities are promoted in our community. And we think, what is going on out there? Here's what it is. The world's full of temptations. The world's full of sin. Now, woe to them for that. The other thing you got to remember is, even when you fight back against some of these things, and certain kinds of establishments open up next to a school or in a neighborhood, and you think, why is that there? You say, we need to drive by, and yes, it's vexing, but we need to drive by, and we need to, we need to beg for mercy for the individual who put it there. Because Christ said, woe to that individual for causing people to sin. I'm telling you, sin is very serious. We get used to it. We live in the cesspool. We're used to being covered with algae and slime of sin to the degree that we're really comfortable with it. We live in such a world that we're just so acclimated to all kinds of sin. And Jesus says, when these little childlike believers come in and enter my kingdom, if you cause them to sin, woe to you. Now the word picture, it involves a personal warning. And if your hand, he's now talking directly to the disciples. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire, the Gehenna fire, a big trash pit outside of Jerusalem that burned and smoldered all the time. It became a word for hell, Gehenna, the hell fire. Wow. You know, if the disciples were sleeping or not paying very much attention to our Lord's teaching on and on, he's teaching all the time, teaching, teaching. Yeah, cut your hand off and poke your eye. Whoa. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? By the way, up on letter B, what I needed to emphasize was that it is a terrible sin to cause people to sin. When we were emphasizing how bad sin is, I meant to say that. It's a terrible sin to be responsible for causing somebody to sin. That's a wake-up call for all of us. Thirdly, this personal warning, the shocking picture is to wake up the listener. 
is to wake up the listener. You know, Jesus is saying, at the least, you must deal radically with sin. Now, let's get something straight here. Let me tell a story about when I was a little boy to make this point. One of my best friends was the next door neighbor kid in South Chicago named Johnny Simon. And uh, Johnny Simon one day stole a bunch of books of matches at the grocery store on his way out of the grocery store. And I got some in my pocket right away. And we were responsible for stealing matches from SNS grocery store up the street from our house. You know, the rack next to the checkout where you got the gum and the, and the breath mints and the fingernail clippers. And old Johnny Simon, he just got him a handful of books of matches and stuck them in his pocket. And then he gave me some and I had them in my pocket. And they were so hot that we lit the field on fire with them. And uh, we got in big trouble, man. Fire department got called. My dad found out about it. Okay, so now let's pretend. So my dad said, boys, you sinned. You stole matches. You took your slimy little six-year-old, seven-year-old hand and you reached out and you took something that wasn't yours and you lit the neighbor's field on fire and you caused a lot of trouble in our community. Boys, bring your hand. Come to my garage. And we go out in the garage and left over in the garage from our church building, laminated beams was a big block of laminated wood. My dad kind of used it as a wooden anvil. Real hard laminated beam cut off and he'd say, boy, put your hand down on that block. And he went and got his double bit axe and he cut our hands off. Now he didn't. Okay, so on the one hand, would we maybe have learned a lesson? Maybe. But does cutting off your hand really keep you from sinning? Sin is an attitude of the heart, isn't it? Does our Lord know, does our Lord know that cutting off your hand or poking out your eye will not keep you from sinning? Of course he knows that. So at the one level, he's illustrating, I think, in hyperbole, the extreme importance of not sinning and of of taking measures to avoid that sin. That we need to do our part to not sin and not let that sin grow. It'll take you to hell. The evidence of a lack of salvation is just characterized by a sinful life. Now, this isn't the first time our Lord taught this. Look at back in chapter 5 real quick. In Matthew chapter 5, and look at verses 20, 20, let's just begin with verse 27. Remember, our Lord has been teaching uh, on the law of Moses and he's been, he's, he's changing it. It was one of the shocking things that our Lord did. In front of the Pharisees, the rabbis, and the teachers of the law, his disciples, and the public, he says this phrase, you have heard that it was said. Well, yeah, we all know this. We memorized this since we were a kid. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, yeah, that's one of the commands. Got it. You shall not commit adultery. We all know what that means. You don't go through this certain kind of behavior. You do not commit that sin. But our Lord shocks them all and he says, but I'm rewriting the law. I'm going to rewrite it. Here's how it is for real. See, he demonstrated his authority over the law even. I'm telling you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's the issue, right? The sinfulness of our hearts that lets our little hands do sinful things, like make a fist and punch somebody in the mouth. 
or raise the wrong finger and wave it at somebody or reach out and steal a little box of matches. I'm telling you that if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart, and your right right eye or your dominant eye, your dominant hand, he's saying, the idea is there, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. I don't think at all, back to chapter 18, that he's saying that you should do this physically. On the one hand, he's illustrating that in an an extreme illustration that you need to take extreme measures. That's how serious sin is. Do your part to knock it off. At some level, he's possibly teaching the Pharisees that you can go ahead and cut off every appendage on your body and you still could end up in hell. The only way we can have freedom from sin ultimately is at the cross, isn't it? Where the shed blood of Christ covers us from, how much sin is it again? A three-letter word? All sin. Don't you love that? All sin. All sin. So back to our notes. We have this personal warning and it's a wake-up call and we're to deal radically with sin and And it's a poke in the eye of the disciples who are there putting one another down. Now in Matthew chapter 5, when he says, cut your hand off and poke your eye out, he's talking about the sin of lust. In Matthew chapter 18, when he says, cut your hand off and poke your eye out, he's talking about another equally serious sin that we deal with, and that is the sin of pride and arrogance. It's insidious, isn't it? It's just always there. And the disciples just were so self-reliant at this time. Jesus now is going to make one final point, and he's going to drive it home with another word picture. Verse 10. So see that you do not despise one of these little ones. That letter A is a connecting line, right? That's a connecting statement. You see this theme that he's dealing with of these little ones? These little ones. Not literally little children, but these new believers. Those who are coming into the kingdom. As you see people come into the kingdom, and you see them turn, and you see them repent, and you see them come after my heavenly Father, and they come into the kingdom. See to it that you do not despise any of them. Because what had they been doing? They had been despising one another. They had been like ready to spit on each other. No, you're not going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm going to be the greatest. You don't deserve to be. I'm better than you. And No doubt it's in that context. So it's a connecting statement that he makes, again, emphasizing these little ones. For I tell you, and he's going to give them the reason then. Here's the reason that you should not despise these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And I say, what in the world does that mean? And so that's a confusing statement to me, letter B. That's a confusing statement. But clearly it's our Lord's argument, right? Do you see the connection in the sentence? In the structure of his argument, the argument is, do not mislead or cause any one of these little ones to stumble. And my argument is, is because I'm going to tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What does that mean? I'm not really sure what it means. Okay, you can write that in the side. PV doesn't know for sure what this means. And if you start reading commentaries, you'll find out pretty quickly that they all disagree as well. So one common idea would be this. 
It might be that all little children, he's talking about my little ones, little children or people have guardian angels. And our guardian angels go to the Heavenly Father and they report the bad things that other people are doing to their person. Okay? That's a cool concept, but it's not really supportable biblically. It's probably unlikely, based upon Scripture, that we all have an actual personal guardian angel. We all like to think that. And sometimes when people die in our family, we like to think that they become our guardian angel. And you can be comforted by that thought if you want, but it's not biblical. It's not, it's not in the Bible. Okay? But like, are there such thing as guardian angels? At some level, yes. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 talks about ministering angels to the body of Christ. Psalm 90 or 91 talks about, about that. A little bit, but it's it doesn't really teach that every person gets a guardian angel that kind of follows you around and takes care of you. Okay. Furthermore, how would it be biblical that our guardian angels are intercessors somehow with God the Father, going to the face of the Father to report back what's going on with somebody causing my guy to sin or my girl to sin down here. So we have one intermediary between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So I don't, I don't know that it's that kind of guardian angel. Does it have to do some commentaries try to argue that the souls of children who die become guardian angels and they are up in heaven. And it just gets really weird and complicated and it's totally speculative and the text doesn't tell us. When the text doesn't tell us, all we can do is take our Lord at face value here and that some level angels who worship, we know from other passages of Scripture that one of the full-time job of certain angels is just to worship in the presence of the Father. Part of the reason that the angels worship is our great salvation. And, and I don't know, but somehow ministering spirits, ministering angels... And it's significant enough in the mind of the Lord who see the face of our Father in heaven. They always see him and, and he's saying, so don't do that. So that wasn't a very helpful four minutes out of this message. But I don't really know what it means. That's a confusing statement in 10b, but it is part of our Lord's argument. He then is going to give his closing statement, which is verse 14 and the closing statement is this. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That thought is going to bridge right into the church discipline passage and the unwillingness of the Father to let any of his children stray or wander, translated perish, probably not referencing eternal condemnation there. The value of us in the eyes of the Father is such that he tells this story. What do you think if a man, verse 12, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So I tell you, not, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Wow. So this must be a story that our Lord told in his teaching. He used it in a couple different ways. In Luke chapter 15, it's part of a trilogy of stories. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, we call it. 
And there, what's emphasized is unto salvation, seeking the lost sheep, which is one who's not within the fold and going out and bringing them back, saving their soul. The idea here seems to be bringing them back into fellowship, connecting them with the body. This is one of my little ones who had childlike faith that somebody scandalized and tripped up and made them stumble with sin. And so now they're left. And, and the, the shepherd is the heavenly father. The sheep is the wandering childlike faith. And the 99 back, they're the faithful ones who've come to church this morning. The other one's gone. And he says, the father goes after him to bring him back because I don't want even one of them to stumble or to perish. It goes back to the preciousness of the believer in the eyes of Christ and the seriousness of sin that trips people up. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So what do we take home from this? What do we get to apply to our lives? Well, it certainly calls us, doesn't it, to a renewed sensitivity to the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin, number one. Can't you see embedded in this, in the kind of stories that our Lord told, the seriousness of sin? It is so serious, poke your eye out, man. It is so serious, a millstone should be hung around your neck. And so one of the things that we should get from our Lord's teaching here is how important it is for us to care about the people around us and not lead them into sin and not cause them to sin. That my behavior wouldn't cause you to sin and that your behavior wouldn't cause me to sin. And that I would be so sensitive to sin and its, its seductive nature in my life that, I, that I'd rather cut off my hand than give in to it. But our problem is we don't take it very seriously. Like I said, we're covered, with the, we're covered with the comfortable algae and slime of sin of this world. And it just kind of feels normal to be around sin. It reminded me of a story about a girl. It's a fairy tale. A young girl was walking through the woods one day when she almost stepped on a snake. When she saw the snake, she pulled back in horror. But to her amazement, the snake cried out to her. Oh, I'm so glad you came along. I'm so cold and I need a friend. Will you please pick me up and put me under your coat so I can get warm? And will you be my friend? In fear, the girl recoiled and replied, Oh, no, I can't possibly do that. You're a rattlesnake and you will bite me. I can't pick you up. No, the rattlesnake answered, That's not true. I promise I won't bite you. I really want to be your friend. And after all, am I not God's creature too, just like you? I'm so cold. Please pick me up. She began to feel sorry for the snake, and so she sat down to think it over. As she looked at the snake, it became more beautiful to her with its many colors. She noticed its graceful lines and movement. She gradually, gradually, it began to look harmless to her. She thought... Well, he's right after all. God created him and just because most rattlesnakes bite doesn't mean this one will. It seems like a very nice snake and shouldn't I be willing to be a friend when someone asks me? So she said, yes, I will be your friend. 
And she picked up the snake and she put it under her warm coat and immediately the snake bit her and the pain and the poison flooded through her body and she cried out in pain, why did you do that? Why did you bite me? You said you wanted to be my friend. And as the snake wiggled away from her and slithered, it turned with a smirk and a hiss and it said, hey, you knew what I was when you picked me up. See, that's sin, isn't it? It'll get you. You know what you're looking at. We play around. We don't take it seriously. Our Lord takes sin very seriously. Remove it and don't cause anybody else to sin. They're precious. Treat them like you would treat me. Secondly, out of this passage, we have to learn a lesson about pride. Our Lord addresses pride in the same way he did lust in Matthew 5. And and it's going to get you. And we must... The theme of this passage is humility. We need the mind of Christ, don't we? That we would have the mind of Christ who took on the form of a servant and humbled himself, modeled for us, who washed his disciples' feet. I think, number three, there's a lesson here that we become more sensitive to our brothers and sisters in Christ. A sensitivity to our brothers and sisters in Christ. When our Lord says... When you receive them in, you receive me. When our Lord said, those who come in my name, if you cause them to stumble, you'd be better off to cut off your hand. Same thing as trying to make Jesus sin if I mess with my brother or sister in Christ. You know, maybe we, like we take sin for granted, maybe we take the body of Christ for granted. Maybe we're too careless with one another. Maybe I really don't look at my brother and sister in Christ and think that's Jesus to me. I don't mean theologically, but I mean relationally. That's Christ. If Christ were here, oh, how I would take care of him. If Christ went astray, if he could, he can. Oh, I would go out on the mountains looking for him. That's the attitude we need, isn't it? And I think finally, the fourth lesson, it's sort of a self-image lesson. It just kind of occurred to me that as you come away from this passage, that it is so serious to cause someone to sin. Pride and arrogance are so serious that he, he camps on it here with the theme of humility permeating this passage. He equates himself with the body of Christ. And then it occurs to me, I'm part of the body of Christ. And that if I were the one that went out on the mountain and was lost, that the good shepherd would come after me. That that if I am one of childlike faith who enters the kingdom, Jesus says, if you take care of him, you're taking care of me. So I really don't need that cool pair of jeans to find meaning in my life and for people to think I'm really something. And I really don't need smooth skin without any pimples. I just need to know. I don't really need braces on my adult teeth to fix my crooked, messed up teeth. I just need to know that when Jesus looks at me, he values me to the degree that if I were lost out on the mountain, he would come after me to make sure I come back. That he died in my place. That I mean, there's just something here about that, isn't there? I think that's embedded in the passage. The value of every believer Ultimately, my personal value 
in front of my heavenly father. Will you stand with me and close in prayer, please? Well, Father, what a teaching. What a passage. I have to keep thinking about this millstone and this whacking off the hand and poking out the eye. And you'll keep teaching us as we ponder and meditate. Thank you for our Lord Jesus and just the the wonderful, beautiful way that he taught his disciples. And thank you for how Matthew recorded it for us, how relevant it is for today. Father, would you wake us up and sensitize us to the evil nature of sin? Keep us from scandalizing one another in any way. Father, help us to overcome pride through the grace of our Lord Jesus. Help us to value the body of Christ as though you were personally here. And may this all just now spill over into our living every day this week. The way I treat my wife, the way I treat my children and my grandchildren, the way I treat the people at the office, may we see Christ. Father, in this world where there is a a curse pronounced and woe unto this sinful world, would you help us to let the gospel shine that people would come into the fold. Continue to teach us, grow us, take care of us till we meet again. In Jesus' name I pray.